Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate Spoiler Special podcast on The Unknown Known, the new Errol Morris documentary about Donald Rumsfeld. And calling in from the Slate DC studio to talk about it with me is Dave Weigel. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dana. Uh, you are a political blogger for Slate and political reporter and uh, movie and, and critic And podcaster, at times. too, which I've, <laughs> I learned from watching you, as they used to say in the old 70s. That's right. Do you want to plug your podcast here? You just started one. I also have a podcast called Weigelcast, but uh, I, I saw this movie sort of expecting to talk more about how it was made and why it exists. And I think you also talked to Errol Morris for for background on 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 how Donald Rumsfeld managed or how he got Donald Rumsfeld to do what had Mac, John, you know Robert McNamara had done to great I think permanent uh damage to his reputation. Right, but 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 great acclaim for Errol Morris's reputation. That was an Oscar-winning documentary, The The Fog of War, which came out what year was it? 2004, I think. Fog of War came out. And 2003 was, and he won the Oscar in 2004 and Errol Morris from the stage of the Academy Awards uh, talked about going down the rabbit hole in Iraq, just like we did in Vietnam. So it's kind of amazing that Rumsfeld sat down for this. Yeah, in fact, rabbit hole is a theme that keeps coming up in this movie again and again. One of the very last lines in The Unknown Known is Donald Rumsfeld saying to Errol Morris, I think you went down the wrong rabbit hole, uh, meaning you know that you didn't get what you wanted from this interview. And I think that's the great question to ask about The Unknown Known. It's, sort of, it's, the, it's the question that seems to be dividing critics on this movie. Personally, I really liked it. I thought it was great. Um, but I think people are finding it unsatisfying because it's not the fog of war. It's almost identical in format, right? It's sitting down with the former Secretary of State in this one-on-one interview that specifically focuses on a very deeply unpopular and probably unnecessary war that he helped to start. And yet, it's a completely different interview and a completely different man. It is. And I guess if, if we're going to spoil it, I what we, I, what we should tell people and what you, people might, might want to know going in the theater is that there is not a moment where Rumsfeld crumples and apologizes for the Iraq War. There is nothing like the fairly long effort McNamara undertook to l- understand the mistakes of Vietnam and to say we were wrong in his own voice many times. Uh, Morris definitely thought going into this, I think, and I'd love to hear what, what you heard from him. For What I've heard from people around Rumsfeld is that the, the, he agreed to this and he agreed to do about 33 hours of interviews because he knew Mor- Morris was a tough interviewer. And he also knew he was not going to apologize for the Iraq war. So this is interesting. You don't get the same sort of catharsis that you get in Morris's first movie. And I think that that is why some critics are are hard on it. it, it good for Morris because he knew he it was it, he was going to try to top his Oscar winning masterpiece with almost the same movie and in a tougher subject that was less... I guess less resonant in, the, in in some of these ways, but if you expect him to be like McNamara, it just doesn't happen. Right. Well, what he said to me when we were talking about it was that yes, there was initial frustration, you know, at, at how slippery and opaque Rumsfeld was. Rumsfeld is apparently always the same man, right? We sort of learned that the guy that he was in Bush-era press conferences that drove us mad with his Zen-like koan statements is is essentially the person he always is, at least when there's a camera trained on him. And and so in that sense it was frustrating, but that when he started to realize that this was the person he was sitting down with, right, and that making a documentary is about learning something about that person, that he became fascinated precisely with that, you know, play of surfaces and the theatricality that Rumsfeld brings to the interview. Honestly, if you've seen Frost Nixon, either the interviews or the docu- the docudrama about 
about the interviews, it's strangely similar to that. It is a powerful man who who has less he thinks to to prove than than Richard Nixon thought. I mean, he Nixon had been dis, disgraced fairly recently and was trying to rehabilitate himself as a state as a statesman. Rumsfeld just has a cockiness to him still that comes across in the movie. Uh, like like Nixon did, but I don't. I I think as this comes out, he's not really talking about the film, but he doesn't feel he 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 did it in order to be grilled by somebody that people would respect. He didn't do it in order in order to defeat him because he thought it was just obvious he was going to defeat him. Right. Well, and it also this is connected to the the memoir that Donald Rumsfeld just came out with, which has a similar title, right? Isn't it called the Known Unknown? Isn't it called the reverse of this movie's title? Unknown and known. Right. Uh, the unknown unknown. Right. So so you want to talk about this memo, this this press conference and memo. I believe it was a press conference first, and then later he wrote it up in, in one of these memos that he was constantly sending out to the department and I think to the whole administration that are called snowflakes. That was the nickname for these white papers that were always going out. Anyway, this 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 one that has the formulation of the four types of knowability that was somehow used for a justification for the war in Iraq. So the quote actually comes from a memo and then also a press conference Rumsfeld gave actually about a year before the start of the Iraq war. Uh, and the, the the quote basically, it, it remains, I think at the time Slate wrote about the poetry of it, it remains just kind of fascinating. I can see even without a, a clear point in the movie why, why Morrissey became obsessed with it. It's, it was, there are known knowns, there are things we know that we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we don't know. And this was in the context of describing how, well, we didn't, we could, could were, we, were we sure that Iraq didn't have weapons of mass destruction? It was all a long-winded and roundabout way of saying that. And Rumsfeld says many such things in the film. A lot of them actually at the prompting of Morris. Uh, Morris uses this device called the Interatron, where instead of the subject looking at Morris while they're talking or looking at a camera with kind of a soulless, a soulless lens on it, they see an image of Morris on the camera. And Morris would take his image off from time to time and have, Rumsfeld would almost read off a teleprompter, his own words to, re- to reflect on them. This one, they just, I mean, it frames the whole movie. Uh, I think what, what what Morris is trying to do with it, because he has a lot of difficulty with Rumsfeld. I mean, this is a guy who does not back down. Uh, I, there, there's a great moment, uh, you probably remember when he Rumsfeld disagrees with the way Morris phrased something. So he rephrases it in a kind of wonderful jargon and then smiles and says, chalk that up. Yep. <laughs> declaring victory. So, yeah, yeah, he's explicitly yeah. <laughs> trying to score points off his interviewer, which is not a way to set up a, a friendly interview. And yet I wouldn't call it directly confrontational. It's more like there's this kind of smarmy scorekeeping going on the entire time. That's right. And that's I think that's why Morris keeps returning to the most recondite phrases, trying to prove that Rumsfeld was occasionally saying things out of total confidence, blustering past them, writing, uh, he, not even writing them down. He would, he would record them in a tape recorder and they would f- show up in memos that were distributed to his, 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 his staff his whole life and especially at the def- defense, defense Department. Um, he just kind of tries to catch him in contradictions. And I don't – I mean, do you think he succeeds in any way? Because that, again, is, this, this is, the, this is the disagreement here. There are people – I saw the movie at the same time as a couple of people I know who really covered the Iraq War – and the Pentagon side of it from the inception, and they're much less impressed with people that 
also saw the movie with me who were 25 and don't remember this. They thought Rumsfeld was basically nailed, and the other people, the people who were, were there, thought he got he got off. Interesting question: Is he nailed or not? I mean, Morris does try to catch him in contradictions at times, and there's there's some moments that are you know the classic sort of John Stewart juxtaposition where where Rumsfeld will say, well, "What's an example of one of them?" I mean, he'll say uh, claims that you know torture practices migrated from Guantanamo to Abu Ghraib and you know these places in the Middle East are false, and then you know Morris will quote from a paper, government paper, you know study proving the exact opposite, and uh, and Rumsfeld will just kind of sit there in silence with this Cheshire Cat grin. I don't quite know how he gets out of it at that moment, but there's 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 no acknowledgement whatsoever of any evidence that that contradicts his statements. No, the one time Morris really nails him, and again they had I think 33 hours of tape, so if there was more, he probably would have put it in there. Is when Rumsfeld says that, and Morris is ready with something that they found in their exhaustive research, this Schlesinger report on how these techniques migrated from memos that that had been written justifying harsh interrogation techniques, how they had migrated to Abu Ghraib. He, Rumsfeld insisted that they couldn't have. He, he's This report is read to him that says they did, and Rumsfeld actually straightens his tie. I mean, he almost, it almost reminds me of the mugging John Stewart does when he's making fun of somebody getting caught in a scandal. Right? That's, like the one, that's the one moment where Rumsfeld really seems to be caught up short. Oh, and but now the, I'm just remembering yeah. that he says, I would agree with that. And it's, I would and agree with that. And it's one of those koan statements, because which of the two opposing sides that were just presented is he agreeing with? And if he is agreeing with the one he appears to be agreeing with, isn't he not agreeing with himself? He, he is, because the rest of the time, the, the, the image of the movie that sticks with you, and I think they've even used this in the promotion, uh, is that he will answer a question and be incredibly proud of how he did so and smile, and the camera just stays on his smile. This this sort of crooked smile he does where he's all the confidence in the world that he just beat you. He doesn't do it in that moment. But there are countless moments where he describes something that might, to, to the audience member, to somebody who thinks he got it wrong, is incoherent. And he just smiles because he knows he, got, he knows or believes he got one over. It almost doesn't matter. I mean, the, the guy's confidence is so overwhelming that at, at one point... There's a long discussion of the Vietnam War. I mean, he was in the Ford administration during the uh, evacuation of Saigon. And what Morris, in trying to get to the question of whether he learned anything there that informed him in Iraq, what he ends up boiling it down to is Rumsfeld saying once, some things work, some things don't. That one didn't. Right. Yeah. It's it's like the stuff happens, right? The stuff happens of the of the Bush era press conferences. And so these these kind of slippery platitudes really they they really are Donald Rumsfeld's political philosophy. It's not as if there's there's much to be glimpsed underneath them. And that's where I think the film succeeds, is that it, it captures what it's like to have a sit down with that person, you know, with that maddening, impossible to nail down and ultimately kind of terrifying person. And it, it, the way you say that person is interesting because I feel as unique and big a personality as Rumsfeld is, uh, as much as McNamara was, this, I think you come away with his less an impression that he was uniquely misapplying his skills in his, in his career, more that there are lots of Rumsfelds in these positions who have this confidence, uh, this lack of, of, of afterthought, and blunder into situations 
And you have to kind of view the film films together. I, I, I was a question I think Morris probably asked himself a lot in, in 2003, 2004. How did these people not learn the lessons of the, the last war we got in, we blundered into without strategy and ended up sending peacekeepers in? And I feel like Rumsfeld's not diminished by the movie, but you, he, he's put much more in, con- in the context of other people we recognize. You know, there's, the, there's a lot of time spent on his relationship with, uh, with George H.W. Bush, with George Bush, with Cheney. Uh, I, and I come away thinking, well, it's not like he was the victim of the Bush administration. The thing is that lots of people who end up in these positions making those decisions think exactly like this. As as gigantic as his ego is, we we're noticing that we're probably not noticing the much the much less much less flamboyant personalities who are who get this and who keep getting into this. And we're watching this. You know, we're, Fog of War comes out when Bush is president. I think it's comfortable for the liberal viewer to watch that and pine for something to change once the president changes. This comes out, and at Rumsfeld, like Dick Cheney. You know, I spent a little time in the movie and spent more time in public statements bragging about how little Obama changed from his policies. All right, Dave, let me just stop you for a minute for a word from our sponsor. The Slate Spoiler Special is delighted to be sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of digital spoken audio information and entertainment. They offer more than 100,000 titles, which you can play on any device. And they have a special offer for spoiler listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free audiobook by signing up here, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. You can choose whatever book you want from their huge selection, but we like to recommend a book that has something to do with our topic of the day. And it so happens that on Audible, there's actually a book by Errol Morris. Errol Morris's contribution to the Jeffrey McDonald literature is called A Wilderness of Error. It's narrated by John Pruden, and it looks like the argument that he's making is that Jeffrey McDonald is, in fact, innocent and may be behind bars in error, which is a very interesting topic for Errol Morris to take on, given that he already freed an unjustly imprisoned murderer with his film The Thin Blue Line. Anyway, I've been eager to read Wilderness of Error since it came out. If you want to hear it on audiobook, you can find it there on Audible, along with over 100,000 other titles. And again, the deal for spoiler listeners, you get a 30-day free trial and a free book if you sign up at audiblepodcast.com spoiler. We thank Audible for their support. All right, back to the unknown known. How do you think Rumsfeld actually comes, comes off? Like, the viewer who goes into this who is the modal, I think, liberal viewer of documentaries. Do you think they come out of this with a improved opinion of Rumsfeld himself? Or Oh, definitely. I would not say improved, um, but maybe, you know, expanded and clarified. I guess I don't think I came out of this as much with a, any reassessment of the Bush administration's prosecution of the war in Iraq. I think I, I, I felt like I learned something about political rhetoric, you know, and the way that it, it, it works to kind of not disclose um, the things that the speaker doesn't want it to disclose. And I do think that Rumsfeld's a master at that. I mean, I guess I saw it more as a portrait of an individual personality than you did. He doesn't seem very typical to me at all. The, the moment when he talks about, he and he and Morris get into this conversation about Shakespeare and the, the tragic vision of history as being driven forward by these these outsized personalities and these big actions, right? And Rumsfeld essentially rejects that even as he seems to be enacting that himself in the documentary and, and in history. He, he just, he finds a way out of that inlet by just saying, 
maybe it was different in Shakespeare's time. Maybe maybe individualism and hubris mattered more when Shakespeare's writing, because certainly in my experience, they don't matter at all. Right. Human uh, nature underwent this this vast change in the last 500 years that makes Shakespeare completely unrecognizable to us yeah, now. But he, it's it's that it's that degree of, you know, plausible deniability and kind of emptiness, you know, at the same time, enormous intelligence, but that intelligence being entirely deployed toward you know, um, the, the protection of his own ass, apparently, that, that, that really struck me the most strongly. Uh, 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 there are so many attempts. I mean, there, there's a little bit of character building, but there are so many questions that hang there. And I think Rumsfeld is not dumb. He knows how the people watching that movie are going to interpret them. But uh, they are meant to have us question, question the logic he, he applied to all these situations. So, And I guess one that stuck with me was... The uh, Dora, the Dora Farms attack at the start of the Iraq War. The Iraq War is about to begin. There is about to be a massive military undertaking uh, to change the regime in Iraq. And there is a incident that I'd frankly forgotten about before I watched the movie where American intelligence thought they knew that Saddam was in this place, Dora Farms. They light it up. They bomb it. He survives. And Morris tries to get Rumsfeld to... Theorize about whether they would have needed to invade Iraq at all had they killed Saddam, and it just again it just hangs there. I think that's it's isn't it's that one when of he these, says time will tell. Time will tell. That's it. The guy just as somebody, <laughs> you know, we both interview lots of lots of people, and you sometimes end up with that subject who just does not want to reflect at all. But I feel like the person who's frustrated by this movie is probably the one who gets fed up with him giving that same answer to almost every question. Every mistake he made, uh, it was the situation that happened at the time when he's asked to muse about history. Uh, he just refuses to, and lots of people do that. But I think Bush does the same thing. Uh, George W. Bush, I think, does the same thing when asked about his decision, says history is going to judge us. I mean, I, I certainly, I like the movie more than some of the, the haters have, but I did find that monotonous. That he he every 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 interrogation ends with him saying, "Well, you know, I did a thing. Some people disagreed with it." Right. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it sort of wrapped around. You know, I think on a first viewing, I watched this twice because I knew I was going to interview Morris, so I wanted to know it really well. And I think by the time I saw it a second time and was not expecting the McNamara moment, was not expecting a structure of revelation or confession or, or breaking down, cracking the nut, you know, kind of thing then I, I actually sort of found it a fascinating exploration of emptiness. But, you know, it, it could it could easily be that if you're watching this as an outraged, you know, um, member of the left who who wants to see Rumsfeld taken down, that you'd be very disappointed by that dynamic. Oh, so it does hold up more when you when it's been spoiled, I guess, when when you know that this guy is not going to apologize for anything that then it, it you think it. Yeah, because I. I guess it just, I to me it became the, uh, it became a sort of a fascinating exploration of of uh, of interview practice and of the encounter of interviewing. I mean, Errol Morris is sort of a notoriously powerful interviewer who can get people to quickly go to places that they wouldn't normally go on camera. And there's such a cat and mouse game going on here. You know, it's it's uncomfortable to watch sometimes from the very beginning when uh, when there's a moment that they're the difference of these two men's personalities is set out. Remember, it's when the unknown known memo was first read, I believe, and. And Errol Moore says something like, what's the source of your obsession with the Iraq war? Why this obsession with Iraq? And Rumsfeld takes issue with the word obsession and says, I'm not an obsessive personality. I'm a cool, what does he call himself? I'm a, I'm a cool, cool and calculating cool, guy. Common, cool and calculating person. Something, it's per, not calculating. Sort of I think that would be too negative of an adjective. Now I can't remember what the adjective is. He Measured. I'm cool, cool and, and measured. measured. Cool yeah. and measured. 
And you know, so he's clearly setting up at the very beginning. You know, he's essentially snidely putting down the guy who's about to sit down with him for a 34-hour interview. So, did did Morris? He talked a little bit about this, but did, what does what did Morris think he got out of Rumsfeld? Does I mean, I'm sure he's now read some of the criticism, and he's written this long, almost like almost a pre-spinning of the film's reaction in the New York Times. I was almost reminded of situations I've seen where a company knows that a scandal's about to break and they put out a bunch of material on how they really want awesome and they scrub up the environment really nice and they employ lots of diverse diverse types of people. <laughs> so you should like... Not, not, not that he did all that, but I mean, he's he definitely has been... When, when The Fog of War came out, he and McNamara went on a, a tour literally to promote it. I mean, Mac, McNamara completely endorsed this. Rumsfeld isn't even fighting back against the movie per se, but Morris is... You know, arguing with the people who are going to come out of this saying you didn't do enough. I mean, what does what does he think he achieved with it? Yeah, I think I mean at least in the version that he gave me, his his frustration at Rumsfeld's lack of self disclosure turned into the subject of the documentary itself, and he was happy with that. That he didn't want to make another a fog of war two, as he called it. And I think he you know he does take issue. He does not like people comparing this negatively to fog of war. I mean, for one thing, I think it, it became clear early on to him that this was not going to have any of the humanist satisfactions that fog of war offers. Which, as you said, I mean, it's in some way as devastating as some of the, those moments of admission are, is, is, a com- is comforting viewing. The McNamara movie is often read as some sort of narrative of redemption, which is a word that he absolutely rejects. He says he's not interested in redeeming anyone. But, you know, if nothing else, that provides a narrative shape that this movie, as you point out, does sort of lack. Well, Dave, we've talked a lot about the content of The Unknown Known, but we haven't talked much about the form. What did you think about Errol Morris's way of presenting this material, which is very specific to him? There's a Danny Elfman score that plays at almost every moment underneath the conversation and underneath the memos. And there's this uh, this graphic effect of letters and words kind of drifting down like snow, you know, to represent the snowflakes of the memos. And I wonder if you found that all sort of, you know, just artistic excrescences on the story, or did you think it really served it? It it was what we expected. It wasn't it wasn't a shakeup in the style. I thought the Elfman score was such an obvious cousin of the Philip Glass score in The Fog of War. The difference, I guess, is that where Glass will use these iterative strings, Elfman uses choirs of children. So it's it's actually I think even more on the nose when you hear a mournful, invisible crowd of children how uh, howling melodically as we talk about the bombing of various various cities and countries and meetings with Saddam Hussein. Uh, I think he has about as much to work with as the fog of war, but he seems to be reaching a bit harder. I mean, there are these Richard Avedon photos he uses. There's the, the, the best trick I th- that I thought was sometimes uh, an imagery of Rumsfeld walking you just B-roll, basically. I mean, Rumsfeld's probably w- walking for a TV segment about himself, walking down the hall in the White House or walking outside. At, and Morris puts on the screen headlines about what he's doing and the chatter of reporters describing what he's doing. And again, just because I viewed this movie more as, I, I guess wrongly, <laughs> wrongly according to Morris, but I viewed it more as a sort of path- path- pathology of power study, it... It that I, hit me because you see journalists covering these guys in real time, covering their ambitions, trying to hold them in their view accountable, and basically being, you know, 
not irrelevant, but something he can walk past easily. He deals with that. He deals with the criticism. He's able to move through politics with a couple of setbacks pretty easily. And certainly he never adjusts what he's doing, according to the questions of the media. There's a lot, actually. And also, you didn't get you got very little of um, McNamara talking contemporarily in the 60s in The Fog of War. And again, I'm, Morris doesn't want us to compare them, but you get a lot of that. You don't get much of that. You get a lot of Rumsfeld here and a lot of him sparring with reporters, not just the famous unknown known, but a lot of moments where reporters clearly we think are right. And he comes off as a bit, a bit smarmy. But we know from Rumsfeld's from everything he said, he loves sparring with reporters. I mean, yeah, he, he was loves... a media star. I mean, that's, I'm sure, yeah. one reason that you don't have old footage of McNamara in press conferences is, is that he wasn't a, a media superstar in the way that Donald Rumsfeld became during the Bush administration. Yeah, and so you see him dealing with the press, which we are part of, and which is supposed to, if somebody's doing something like taking taking a lot of power and losing a war, we should probably catch them before they do that. You see him just kind of playing cat and mouse in a way that's enjoyable to him. Now, at the very end of his career, it ends poorly. But the movie reminds us he got a lease lease at life. He offered his resignation after a bougarib wasn't taken. He got two more years to prosecute the thing. I think the way that Morris uses just the press's Greek chorus and presents them being swept aside by him, I thought that was effective. The The one thing that baffled me that I would love it if you could spoil this for me. What is the rocket that shoots out of the water at one point? Is that just meant to demonstrate that some things are unexpected? What, well, what's going on in the soundtrack at that moment? What's, <laughs> who's talking about what? Because there's, it, because there's a little bit of Carl Sagan action, right? There's some, there's some outer space shots that Errol Morris cuts in and, you know, sort of um, telescopes and, and NASA equipment because, because of the, uh, the Carl Sagan quote that Donald Rumsfeld appropriates about the absence of evidence is not evidence of, of absence. He does that, but I think the moment that I, I, what I wrote down was that Rumsfeld, they'd just been talking about how you can't predict everything. And you see it, kind, of a, kind of a basic point. And then there's a static shot of some water, which Morris returns to in order to turn the water into a bunch of words, which I found a little bit corny. And it's like a rocket shoots out of the water and then dis- the with no explanation, and we move on. I just remember the screening I was in of you know, hopefully pretty smart people in D.C. looking around, wondering what the heck that was supposed to mean. And I kind of th- thought, oh, well, that's a flourish to demonstrate that you can't predict everything. Uh, I th- didn't think that worked as well. I definitely found this a bit, a little bit chintzier than The Fog of War. And nothing as as powerful as that moment in The Fog of War when the names of 100 cities America bombed in Japan are put on screen and transpose with cities of the same size in the United States. I mean, for as much as Rumsfeld did, I think, because he's not apologetic, you can't do the same thing. Morris ends up doing interesting aesthetic, giving interesting aesthetic treatment to his disregard for for the public and the press. Um, That stuck with me. But again, it's not going to be very satisfying if you can't come to this thing looking for the man you hated as he took America into war to appreciate that you have what you thought of him yeah no you're right i mean i can't as much as it sounds like i like this better than you i can't argue that it has the moral heft or maybe the lasting value of a fog of war which really feels to me like whether you're interested in errol morris and you know documentary filmmaking or anything stylistic about it at all needs to be seen just as a, a human document all right dave thank you so much for coming in to spoil the unknown known did i get it right the unknown known with me 
you got it. Let's just, uh, I encourage everyone to go home and say that 10 times fast and maybe watch it. And maybe actually figure out the distinction among those four epistemological categories. All right. Well, please come back and spoil another movie with me soon. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.